Welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. We're here to promote lifelong learning through the context of adventure. Through our one-on-one interviews, we capture in-depth stories across a variety of subjects, emphasizing a new life lesson in every episode. We're on a mission to entertain, educate, and inspire you to embrace new challenges, reflect, push through fears, and get out there in search of your own adventures. We passionately pursue good story, and we'll run, climb, wade, ride, hunt, ski, or paddle our way into new ones, all in search of continual growth. We call it taking our medicine, and we invite you to join us for today's dose. Today we've got an awesome guest with us, uh, James Samsel, fly fishing advocate, steelhead enthusiast, and fine art connoisseur uh, from the beautiful state of Oregon. James and I have a shared history. We spent uh, a glimpse of life together in the summer of 2005 with a whitewater rafting outfit called All Star Rafting. James and I had a chance to reconnect here over the past year, and he's got a story that will certainly carry a tremendous amount of impact for our listeners, and I am really eager to get to sharing that with him. So, James, welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. It's so good to have you. How you doing, man? Right on, Drew. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, well, James, if you're at all familiar with kind of how we do things, uh, I would love to start off by having you tell our community a little bit about uh, the young James Samsel. Tell us, uh, tell us where you were born and uh, give us some details about your early life. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Missoula, Montana, Um, third generation fisherman. My mom's Puerto Rican. My dad is uh, Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, Ended up in Missoula after a summer of taking their bubble top van across the country. Um, And they would decide on where their next home was going to be. And they chose Missoula because my dad was so into fishing. that the Clark Fork was there and all these different rivers in that area were there. And it was a beautiful place to start a family. Yeah. And so my sister and I are the product of that and uh, had a great childhood growing up there in Missoula. Um, started fishing and was introduced to that uh, when I was five years old. Um, I remember being in this campground outside of Superior, Montana, a place that we, we would always go to uh, as kids. And I would say – you know, goodbye to my friends for the summertime, and I would spend three months basically in the woods, either by myself or with my dad, uh, learning how to fish. And I remember my first lesson was was learning how to tie my knots. Um, and my dad said I wouldn't be able to go even casting until I understood how to tie my knots. And once I did that, I remember my first cast was on this dirt road in the campground and went straight into the trees, and, and that's how I started my first uh, experience fishing. Um, and between that and my grandfather, my dad's dad, Jimmy, who I was named after, um, you know, between his lessons and my grandfather's lessons and, and my discoveries on the river, I, I started a, a real solid connection there um, with nature. And it's, it's kind of been my guiding light ever since. And uh, for me, uh, my church is nature. Um, and it's a, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great deal of why I am the way I am today and where I've, I've gone and why my path is that way. Yeah. Uh, solid upbringing, uh, starting out fishing. That's how awesome. it really started. 
Awesome. So what an eclectic, uh, what an eclectic start. Pennsylvania yeah. Dutch paired up with Puerto Rican. How, how you got to give me some background there. Yeah. So, uh, it's funny. My parents met in San Juan, Puerto Rico. My mom was born in New York, but was raised in the South part of the Island there. And they worked for the crime commission. And my dad was, uh, my mom's boss and they started an office romance and, um, through time, um, started dating and seeing each other and married and, and eventually, uh, left Puerto Rico and, uh, started anew, like I said, traveling around the country and basically dropped everything to just start a family and, uh, new careers, new everything. Uh, my dad was a, a store chain manager for, uh, uh, a convenience store called town pump and he had the Western side of the state. So, um, that's how I got to go outside so much is because he traveled and I'd go with him and we'd camp, um, and uh, that was it's it's kind of an, an interesting mix, um, but I'm happy to have it because within that I was I was given um, some foundations. I was I was raised Catholic at a private school, uh, but also uh, was raised with an immense amount of spirituality um, through my grandmother on my mom's side, um, and also the connections with uh, the people that I grew up with. A lot of my friends were Blackfeet and. And uh, we spent a lot of time at powwows and kind of going through uh, the tradition and the, the spirituality of uh, kind of um, working with nature and connecting. Um, and I was always drawn to that and to the unknown and to higher thoughts. And um, I think that's just part of my upbringing and also just uh, who I came out of my mom as, just a person that feels and feels a lot. Um, I've always, as a kid, paid attention uh, one of the first memories I ever had was my dad uh, teaching me how to draw with a pencil. And it wasn't stick figures or, you know, how to draw a tree or anything, but it was more about values and shading and, and contrast and how to create form with graphite. And it really sparked a foundation for me to, to really enjoy the arts. Uh, but it wasn't until I was 10 years old till I started to actually go away from black and white pencil drawings and started watching Bob Ross on TV and started painting. It sounds like a cliche, but that's just how I started painting. Wow. And so, yeah, it was, um, I, I had a mix of all kinds of other stuff. And yeah, when I was 10, we moved away from a cul-de-sac where I had all of my childhood friends to the side of a, a mountain next to the Clark Fork River where I didn't even have a neighbor. So I was left to, you know, my own devices hiking miles along the river during the day and, and watching Bob Ross and, and painting and getting my creative side on. Wow. So did you, so K through, uh, what would that be? K through third grade you spent in, uh, in kind of a more or less like a, a suburbia. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty much that. I think when I was 10, I was in fifth grade is when, when we moved to the outskirts of okay. Missoula. Okay. Um, and I remember my dad and I walking on the banks of a Clark Fork and he stopped and we we're on this trail and he turns around and, you know, my dad's pretty quiet and he doesn't say much, but when he does, it's usually something pretty pertinent. And he looked at me and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, you know, this isn't a, a thought, you know, you know, everybody says, you know, I'm a fireman or I want to be a, a police officer or whatever, or a doctor, you have all of these dreams. But I knew um, from that young age that, um, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to paint 
Uh, I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to play music. And I wanted to be a professional fisherman if there was such a thing. And my dad told me that, you know, they're all really great, passionate things, but that I was going to have to work hard because those are the hardest things to become in life. But I was one of the fortunate ones to have um, kind of an inner spark and, and paid attention to that and knew that it was essentially my destiny to do these things. And in what capacity, I'm not sure. And I still uh, am working on that today. Wow. So, so you, you had mentioned uh, the Blackfoot. Um, so yeah. growing up in Missoula, you you had chances to uh, to intersect with uh, with some cultural riches that not many get an opportunity to uh, to be a part of with Native Americans. Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So I mean. Um, my infatuation with Native Americans started very young because I had friends who had all of these beliefs. I was in touch with nature. My grandmother, um, was also very spiritual, had a connection, and we always believed that uh, we had spirit guides. And our spirit guides in our family were Native Americans, um, um, guides that, you know, um, whether they're known throughout history or not, um, were given to us, whether it's through higher power or however you want to look at it, but essentially our protectors. Um, and them protecting us is, is kind of their chance at advancement in the spirit world for them. It's kind of like you take these steps. Uh, and it's funny because I've had all of these guides um, that I knew of through my grandmother because she could speak to them and whatnot. And I had um, this knowledge of guides, and uh, it's funny to then realize now that um, I essentially am a guide for other folks in a different capacity, um, and that's guiding spiritual journeys on the river uh, through uh, connection with steelhead, swinging flies. Um, awesome. So, uh, yeah, so um, I've always had a, a connection, and going to powwows, uh, close personal school friends. Uh, my grandmother tells me this story that when I was first born, they went to a powwow. Of course, I was too young to remember this. Uh, and the chief raised me up in front of everyone, and they all started singing and whatnot. It was kind of my introduction to the to the group. Uh, and you know, some of the details from those stories fade as my grand grandmother's getting older now. Uh, she's ninety three, but um, uh, stuff that was definitely ingrained in me, and and a, a different way of thinking about how I, I go through my life and what kind of impact am I going to have and what am I going to do to contribute and to save what we have in the natural world so that our next generations can enjoy that. Um, and I think there's a lot of teaching and wisdom in, in the ways in many of many tribes in, in North America, because I really feel like they had it right and they did it. They did it well. Um, wow. And so I kind of try and ingrain some of that spirituality into my teachings today and also into my artwork. Wow. So that's a big part of me. Wow. Yeah. Um, tell us about your teenage years, James. What uh, what developed there? Yeah, teenage years were interesting. When I was 16, uh, my family moved to Reno, Nevada. Um, my sister had married this gentleman who owned a pawn shop in downtown Reno, one of the largest pawn shops in the world. They had some stores in Vegas, too. Um, okay. My dad was good at his job as a manager for this other outfit he was working for, and um, he was asked by my brother-in-law to come run his company and he left for about a year and um, there was a there was a, a year where he was gone and my mom was working retail working late and my 
other sister, Elena, was off uh, in, in college at the university there in Missoula. And uh, so it was myself and my mom. And um, there's many days spent uh, watching Food Network, uh, learning how to cook. And it, it translates to my later career. But um, I used to cook for my mom and chef for her and make make her time special when her husband was away to, um, you know, just as a thank you for watching us. And it, and it, and it kind of just created this other foundation. Um, but uh, we ended up moving after that uh, to Missoula, or I mean, I'm sorry, to Reno, uh, Nevada. And um, of course, coming from a place that is filled with nature to go into a city that seems sinful to me or just dirty uh, was hard. It was yeah. a tough transition. Um, and so needless to say, I didn't, didn't connect with my high school as much. I remember walking into the doors and um, the bell ringing on my first day and 2,000 kids just ambushing me in the middle of this place is what, or what it felt like coming from a, a high school of 200 total to 500 in my class alone was kind of a big culture shock for me. Yeah. So um, my, my high school wasn't traditional in that I went to my prom and went to dances or chased girls or whatever it was. Um, my connection was found in the snow. Um, and, uh, I played in Tahoe a lot and, um, there's always something in my line in my life that draws focus for me. And, um, that focus could be pulling away from some other emotion or some tough thing that I'm going through, or it helps me build character through those times. And snowboarding was an absolute savior for me playing in the mountains. I mean, I'd get off from school and head out with a few buds and go up to Boreal and, and night ski till nine at night. And then the weekends were all day and it was just, you know, early morning, 6am driving over to a friend's house, banging on their door, pulling them out of bed, trying to motivate people to go up and practice our craft. Um, because we didn't know it at the time, but eventually uh, it was going to lead to a career in that industry as well. So my, my high school, was, uh, was kind of split from friends that I had since kindergarten and saying goodbye to all of those people that I've knew, known my whole life to something new and different and, inter and interesting in that um, I had to find my outlet. Yeah. And it didn't seem like the fishing was going to be my outlet there. And so I strapped a snowboard to my feet, and that's how it began. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, so post graduation, did you uh, did you stick around in Reno for a while, or when when did that uh, transition into kind of uh, early adult life for you, James? Yeah, yeah. So it, it transitioned. I I was always concerned about my parents' finance, and so I never really wanted to go to a university and, and spend high money for that. And um, my schooling, I was. I was a good student in that if I was interested in the subject, I would do well. But if I if I wasn't interested, I just wouldn't put the time into it. Um, I went to a community college there in Reno uh, for, I think, half a semester. I was going to go to kind of start just getting my, my basics done so I could pursue a career in fine arts. Um, but within that semester, I realized that I, I was uh, showing up more than my teachers were, and I didn't understand like where the knowledge was coming from and I knew I was young and I knew I had a talent uh, with a snowboard. So I uh, went to my dad's office in the pawn shop in downtown and I sat with them. I remember having this emotional conversation with them 
uh, and telling him that I was not going to pursue an, an education and that um, I was going to pursue a career as a snowboarder and wanted to get his blessing, and he was totally fine with that. Um, uh, I've been very fortunate that my parents have supported the things that I do, whether they like it or not, and, and to realize that I was I'm my own person and I'm going to make those choices. And so they allowed me to succeed and they allowed me to, to fail, and I think those are valuable lessons. So um, that's how that kind of started, and I, I really started getting heavy into the snowboard scene uh, after that point right there. So whether that was filming with friends or filming with the crew or uh, competing in contests, uh, we were there, it seemed like, 24-7 on the hill. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so you took, uh, you took snowboarding to the next level. You went pro. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was actually pro. I was a sponsored rider. Um, and so I got to ride a lot of places for free. I got to travel a lot. I got contests, entry fees, um, paid for, and I got a lot of gear and I was, I was allowed to do the things that made me most happy. Yeah. Um, and at that point it was, it was riding with my friends and whatnot, but, um, we worked hard. Yeah. We went to the mountain to, to play and have fun, but we were practicing our craft. You know, we were pushing each other. It was like, okay, what's the next trick? What are we going to do? How can we make that better? Like what's next? And, um, you know, it's a hugely competitive, um, field. Um, and it was, it was a tough career. It was hard. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, eventually I, I did work for a company and I wrote for them and I did a demo tour with them with this company called Battalion Snowboards. And I remember having this low point uh, in my career. I was in a, at a Red Bull rail jam in Portland and I remember riding really well um, and riding better than um, a lot of the pros that were in there. There were, you know, names I've already made it made it in the industry and I remember not making it to the next round and feeling how political that was and um, I was upset and you know let let the judges know I was upset and you know said that you know it's a whole fashion show and I remember my friends in the crowd being shocked because I'm pretty quiet but when I have something to say it comes out um, and I was I was uh, ashamed of my words um, and it was a huge lesson for me because I realized that I felt like the industry was a bit like high school, that um, really every industry sense that I've been in is about the same. And it was really about my attitude and how I handled that. Um, wow. So that was a big lesson for me. But that was kind of how I started to phase myself out. Yeah. Okay. And how old were you at that point? Um, I was about 20 years old. Okay. Uh, 21, so I was still pretty young. Our team photographer, uh, you interviewed and uh, had a story with him, and he's a friend of ours, Abe Blair. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I asked Abe, I was, you know, when you're not shooting action photography, you know, skiers and snowboards in the winter, what do you do? And, you know, in the off season, he's like, oh, I'm a river guide on the Deschutes River up in, in Moppin, Oregon. So, uh, and I was super interested, and I asked Abe about it. And he said that he saw my work ethic. He, he knows that I work hard and that he would talk to his boss. And, um, you know, if it worked out, I'd come up to Maupin and they'd give me two weeks and the whole term is either sink or swim. And uh, apparently I swam and, and two weeks later I was guiding 
uh, raft trips down the Deschutes. It's pretty interesting. That's, was, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, that's where you and I picked up. That's, uh, yeah. same story for me. Um, no real reason for me to have, uh, crossed paths with, with, the rafting industry other than uh, a couple of guys that, uh, that I knew and respected from, um, from the grade above me. One of them had an uncle who actually, uh, who actually owns, um, gosh, the name escapes me. What was down right below the skunk shack along, uh, just opposite bake oven road. There was, um, there was like a bed and breakfast that had like four or five cabins there. Uh, oh, the Oasis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Mark Malafite's nephew was uh, was a grade above me and uh, went out there for the summer of 2004, came back with crazy stories, and uh, I needed to uh, to check it out for myself. So I kind of got... Um, Kind of got my uh, my school on board, and we created an internship out of the thing. Um, so, um, wow, James. So from an early age, <clears throat> Dad is is very much um, artistic with exploring the natural world with any given uh, medium, so to speak. Mom is incredibly um, in touch with her emotional side, and and you inherit a lot of that that uh, attribute as well. Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, They they marry, live in Ohio for a short time, jump in a bubble van, cruise over to Montana, park it, grow young James and two daughters. You have yeah. So well, my dad was was married to this other woman in California, and I had a half sister, and I have uh, another sister now. And the reason why I say it had is that first year with you, Drew, uh, my first my first week in mopping. Uh, we were, uh, you brought this up the other day is that, uh, we were at this bowling alley and I, and I hardly knew you at this point and there's some other guys as well. And we we're just kind of doing some team building, getting to know each other. And I get a phone call. Um, Erica was one of the other guides and she gets a phone call from my mom. And so that already put up some red flags because I don't even have Erica's number. And, and, uh, she proceeds to tell me that my sister was killed and that her husband killed her and, um, I think that that um, was a huge trigger for me, and it comes to play later on in life for me. It's kind of a, a start of a different kind of emotional roller coaster uh, for me, and um, and what life really means, and how to handle uh, events like this. Because honestly, when that happened, it was like a you know really like this is a movie, yeah. You know, like this this doesn't happen in real life. These kind of things, you know, you read about in papers and the news and whatnot, but it's actually happened to our family. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, hearing about the Michigan boys, uh, before I came and, and you guys kind of had this legacy and you were coming into that and, um, you, you became a really solid friend for me during there. And I think both you and I really focused in on our skill set and pushing each other, but, um, we worked hard. But even more than that, like you were one of the guys that got me through that very difficult summer where I lost my sister. And I think our connection was super meaningful. And one of the things that was the catalyst that allowed us to have uh, this platform to open up and and share with each other and and experience was being outside and specifically fishing. I remember fishing with you a lot. It was was fun. Um, We had good times, man. Yeah, James, I'll never forget that day, man. That was uh, that was probably one of the heavier moments in my young life at that point too. Um, 
And and I could be 90 years old and say that. I mean, that was just one of those monumental moments that nobody ever forgets. I won't ever forget the way uh, that you heard that news, your body language, the posture, uh, everything, all of it. Heaviest, uh, heaviest phone call you've ever received in your life had to have been. Yeah. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. Um, and I agree, man, the, I think, uh, you know, the, the cement in our relationship was a, the fact that, man, I got to know you through some of the ugliest life terms that, that can be addressed to somebody. Um, but I think there was a lot of empathy there. Um, I've always kind of, I've just had a heart for people who are hurting and, uh, I knew you needed somebody plus you were a cool dude and, and you liked to fish. So that first, uh, I think you probably took off for two or three weeks maybe. Um, and when you came back, I just remember grabbing a fly rod. We didn't talk too much, but we just drove, uh, drove up past Harpham flat. Uh, yeah, we caught, uh, caught a handful of fish that, that night and just kind of sat and, um, enjoyed each other's presence, enjoyed, you know, the, the whispers of, of the wind coming through that Canyon, the smell of sage and, and the sound of salmon flies fluttering, uh, in the tree above us. Uh, and I think we just shared a moment and I, that's etched as well. Like that will forever be one of those moments where, where I just kind of felt the healing that nature can offer us. Um, and I knew it was there for you too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough three weeks. Um, but, um, you know, even being on the river for a week and then having to leave for three weeks, the beginning of the season of my rookie year, um, that one week had enough impact that it really wanted to bring me back because, I mean, from a, something that as traumatic as your sister being murdered and, um, you know, you being very close to her um, and someone that you love very much, um, it can, you know, debilitate you. It can absolutely freeze you. Um, and any goals or ambitions that you have, it'd be very easy to get sucked into a hole um, and not exist. So um, I think that it, the Deschutes is a special place, and it also speaks volumes for the people who own the company and uh, my teammates, you know, and the love that I felt just before I left to want to come back as a safe place for me to be to then continue to grow and do some healing. It says a lot. It yeah. really says a lot. So yeah, I'm man. thankful for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just for the sake of our listeners, James, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point by any means, but, uh, if you're comfortable sharing some of the details, give, give us the overview of what went down that day. Um, uh, in terms of the day when I heard the news or what happened to my sister. Yeah. What, what went down with, with your sister? Yeah, so my sister was married to a very well-to-do to uh, pawn shop business owner and had lots of money inherited from his his dad. His family was super into it. Uh, my sister was in love, married this this man, and they had about, oh, about a 10-year relationship. And within that, had a little girl, my niece, Erica. And um, they, you know, Darren and my sister, Charla, went through a divorce. They weren't happy. And... Um, you know, the Darren was a, um, uh, a big time sportsman and hunter. Um, and so he didn't like how the divorce court went. Um, and so one morning he ended up 
going to my sister's house and he killed her. He stabbed her. Um, and then immediately after that, went to a second story parking garage and out of the back of a rental vehicle, uh, shot a federal judge, Judge Waller, um, in the chest through a window uh, in downtown Reno uh, and fled to Mexico where um, a pilot from American Airlines uh, noticed him um, and uh, notified the authorities and he surrendered. And uh, he's in jail, 35 to life. Um, and I think he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable that you wouldn't think anything like that would ever happen to you or your family. Um, and my parents knew uh, that I'm such an emotional person and how close I was to her that they didn't want me even to go home right away. So I remember leaving Maupin and having to go find pieces of nature where I could sit and exist and meditate on all of this because they were afraid I would come down and, and do something because I was, I was very protective. I'm, I'm overly protective of my family uh, and especially my sisters. And so, you know, when my mom called, and said this happened, that my sister had been killed, and then to then go inside to see you guys there in the bowling alley and asking the bartender to turn the TV on and seeing my sister's face on the on the TV was it was shocking um, and quite surreal. Yeah, um, it was a tough it was a tough day for our family, and it was a tough time, and it, and it continues to be. Yeah, uh, if it was six years after her death that I, I still. Um, would go down river and you know that topic would come up with my guests yeah um, it, was, it was big I still had to do a lot of healing yeah but, yeah um, well what 10, 10 or 12 years after the fact uh, I just want you to understand that um, it still tugs at at my heart too man that's that's one of those stories that uh, I, I don't think you'll ever fully heal from nobody can but uh yeah, I feel like it's only appropriate to continue extending my condolences. That's that's a heavy yeah, story, man. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. All right. So transitioning from uh, from where James and I actually spent a summer getting to know each other um, and just one of the best summers of my life. Uh, that was, by all means, an all-star crew. Uh, I love it. All-stars. Yeah. Yeah, I learned more about life, I would say, in those four months than uh, – than I had in, in the 10 years before or 10 years later, it was just one of those, one of those eye openers for me, man. Um, just learning about how well, um, people from all kinds of different backgrounds can coexist in a tiny little community. Um, even when you describe what Maupin is, it's, it's pretty surreal. I mean, it's a little sleepy town nestled in, in between, you know, the, the plateaus of the high desert in Eastern Oregon. And, uh, there's not more than 400 people who live there. And the only thing that, uh, that really draws folks to Maupin is the Deschutes, the mighty Deschutes, which flows from Mount hood all the way out to, uh, out to the Pacific and, and to the Columbia. So, um, yeah, James and I got a chance to, uh, to basically explore, um, all of that, together and uh had had the honor and privilege of of kind of learning how to how to navigate life for those those four months like i said in a tight-knit close community where everybody lived within a, a rock throw from each other man we were all in various vans that were rusted out and sitting up on cinder blocks and 
that was our own. I mean, it was like a little pikey village, but it's it, it a summer cool. camp for adults, man. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super fun. There's some debauchery, but there's a, a lot of growth there because um, you go from someone who has no clue about how running a, a boat down the river uh, is going to go to then having this great sense of responsibility for people's lives and ownership for keeping them safe. Um, and I think there's a ton of growth that happens there and, and just in your boat, but then also, um, lifestyle choices and, and living closely with people, which, um, is a, a huge skill set to have. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not easy as much as it was fun. It's, it was hard. Yeah, it was, but that's, yeah. that's where the growth, I think to your point, that's, that's why you grow. Yeah. So thanks for getting us caught up on kind of your background. Um, that's, that's such a unique background. And uh, I, I got to say, it's very clear to me um, how you have developed into the person that you are um, only having a very unique background. So thanks for getting us caught up. Um, James is going to share some, some pretty raw stuff with us today. He's got a, a big story to, uh, to break free from. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of folks who are tuning in right now who can, uh, who can certainly find a way to relate to somebody who's willing to be real who's willing to be exposed and who's willing to just uh, walk out on on the edge here in order to help some folks glean some insight um, into an issue that I think is much larger than uh, many of us might understand. But uh, I'm going to let him kind of take the uh, the stage from here. James, um, tell, us, uh, tell us your story, man. Yeah. Um, it's a big story. I'm gonna I'm gonna break it down. Um, what I'm about to tell you all happened in uh, pretty much the bulk of February of 2015. So still somewhat fresh, um, but um, it's I'll, I'll I'll talk about two different parts of this month long adventure that I went on. Um, in 2015, I was diagnosed bipolar one. Okay. And for those who don't know what that means, is that uh, my brain chemistry is um, that in that it's off or it's different than let's say quote unquote normal folks, and that I have uh, the great ability to feel a huge range of emotion um, from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows, um, and and that's key to get this diagnosed diagnosis because um, being an emotional kid, being an artist, being one that feels on the river, that that is aware of most things throughout the day and, and prides themselves in being completely aware and present, um, you know, um, it, it, the diagnosis gave me a lot of answers for these things that I was feeling for so long. And um, for the things that have happened, a traumatic story such as the one with my sister, Charla, that have triggered these things that are in me um, to come out. So um, in 2015, um, I was what I consider to be the, the highest point of my career, both as an artist and as a steelhead guide in Southern Oregon. Um, I had... Um, in the previous years, I think it was in 2011, I had first started taking a job working with this company, Row Adventures, doing multi-day trips in the Rogue River Canyon um, to then catching my first steelhead on a swung 
fly on the Rogue River, um, my first uh, rogue fish, uh, to then that day asking for a job for at a lodge called Morrison's Rogue River Lodge where I um, asked for a job because I wanted to be a steelhead guy. Because all that I had ever heard of the Rogue River was all this talk about juvenile fish and what are called half-pounders and not so much the adult fish. And uh, as Drew knows, adult steelhead on the Deschutes are awesome. Uh, my first swung fly experience happened there. It changed me forever. It changed my path. Um, also, where uh, I was I was taught to really paint by a gentleman named David Kinker, kind of all funneled into my careers as both a multi-day adventure guide, uh, steelhead guide, and uh, uh, impressionist, passionist painter. Um, and so... Um, in 2015, uh, after I had been guiding for the lodge for four years, they asked me to, to do some trips on the road. And we had several teams that we would uh, match up, and we'd go and travel to shows all over the country um, selling uh, fishing trips for this lodge. It's going to big uh, outdoor shows. And I went to several outdoor shows with this, this crew, um, specifically this guy named Brent White, who's a good friend of mine and also a Rogue River guide and fishing guide and multi-day guide. And uh, we went um, to Texas. And we were going to spend a few days in Texas and a few days in Oklahoma. And we we're going to do some fly talks. We we're going to go to some shows and do all of this. And um, Brent and I, it was interesting at first. We didn't really understand each other, didn't didn't really know each other. We'd see each other at the lodge wave and never really made a connection until we were paired up. And it turns out we really got along uh, so much though, that I would start sharing with him uh, my stories of my spirituality and things that I've seen in my life that are a not explainable or, you know, you really have to be a believer to really understand it or not. Um, but um, I would tell a bunch of different stories about who I am and how I got the spirituality and something was happening. There was a, a huge wave of emotion pulling through me and I started to feel high um, and didn't know exactly what that is other than it feels good and I feel really connected and in touch with a higher power. Um, and whatever that higher power is for me and for me is God. Um, and so that really started to, to kick in and I told a lot of stories to Brent and at one point Brent stopped me and he's like I just have to soak this in and so he would take breaks and soak it in and he's like I've never heard anyone speak this way before um, and it, it was just it's a it's a raw emotion lots of detail um, but um, just storytelling and um, we just started to have these connections and eventually I stopped sleeping at night and I was in ultra production mode. So whether it's getting ready to do a fly talk, whether it was, uh, you know, um, working on, I was writing a book at the time, working on video edits of fishing, um, all kinds of stuff, just making connections and was just in hyperdrive. Um, but, um, I had, given this talk at this, uh, Houston fly fishers talk and I got, this whole crowd super excited and Brent told me because he knows I'm such an emotional person and that I'm so energetic before he walked in the doors, he said, 
the only thing is, is you cannot lay on the ground. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, he's like, just don't end up on the ground. That's all I'm going to say. And of course I met one of my heroes, shook his hand and I dropped to the floor. And here I am laughing, laying on the ground because I'm stoked to see this person and this connection. And anyway, I get this group super excited. We come back to the hotel. I don't sleep all that much that night. And, uh, this, the, you know, in this state, all of these things just start coming to you. And it's like the world is glittering is the best way I can describe that. Um, you seek meaning in a lot. You, you know, you feel emotions, vibrations. And from a young age, I've always chose to follow my heart. And I think we have these two big organs, our brain and our heart. And sometimes they battle and sometimes they work together. Um, but I'm a huge advocate of caring and feeling before anything and above all. And that first instinct following your heart, I, I, I do that. So, so here I am, Brent is sleeping, I'm up all night, and all of a sudden this list of all of these wonderful people in my life start showing up, and I make this list of 13 people. I don't know what it means, but they're all these people that I've had this really amazing connection with, and they're also all these stories that I've told Brent along the way, and he understands who these people are. And and um, I had taken, I, this is a little, you got to make the connection here, but I had taken this trip across uh, the Southwest uh, maybe a year before that, two years before that, or about a year, um, uh, painting. And um, uh, I remember going through Canyon de Chez in the Grand Canyon. I even taught on the Navajo Reservation. And I'm going to my sister's in Alabama, and as I'm driving, I'm just having this crazy pull to go to Oklahoma. And I just have this, you know, my heartstrings are pulling that way. I need to go to Oklahoma. I need to go to Oklahoma. And I ignored it. And I go to my sister's, and I have Christmas. Um, and there's a whole other wild story beyond that. But just so you know, I have these heartstrings for pulling. And so just to reverse a little bit about my spirituality and who I am and when I was talking with my grandma about our guides, uh, one of the guides that speaks to my grandmother is his name is Geronimo. And Geronimo, um, I wasn't ever sure if it was like the great Apache, you know, like the, the warrior who was Geronimo. Um, and um, these, these, these uh, guides would speak through my grandmother. Um, really intimate things but like when Geronimo spoke he was definitely you know a great warrior Indian and it was it was it was interesting um and um I've always was fascinated because he was kind of our Mayana he was like the the straw that stirs the nucleus he was the guy that um all of the other guys you know kind of looked up he was the main dude and he was always my grandmother's and I remember having what we call like prayer circles in Puerto Rico a couple of years before this all happened, and she gave me Geronimo. Um, and I remember when I was going across country and getting to my sister's doing research on Geronimo, when I, you know, I would talk to him and, and ask things, I would start to yawn. And I'm like, why am I yawning? You know, I think, you know, and when I'm praying to, I pray to God and, and all this, and I'm like, why am I yawning? I just don't understand this. And it turns out that um, Geronimo had a traumatic experience, lost his family, went to the desert to fast, um, and this is where he started getting his quote-unquote powers, um, his visions to see, his guidance, 
and what he used to then guide his people um, for so long against the military militia, um, you know, and was told as long as he was doing right that no arrow or bullet would ever kill him. And he died of pneumonia in old age, but um, that's where he got his powers, and his tribe called him the person, you know, his name was the one who yawns. And so when I read this, I'm just totally tripping out, right? And so so that that's key is to know that I have this connection with Geronimo. I go across country, and I'm feeling this pull to Oklahoma. And then a year after all of this, here I am in Texas, and then I'm up all night writing this list, and I know we're going to Oklahoma the next day. And I'm taking a shower early in the morning. It's like 5.36. Brent wakes up. And he already knows that I'm on some spiritual journey. And he's just, you know, trying to facilitate this thing. So he sits up and he looks at me and he says, where are we going today? And, you know, it's like, well, we're going to our next show. And we got to do all this. And I was like, we got to find Geronimo's grave. And he's like, okay. And so we pack up, we get in the car, and we're driving. And there's, you know, Geronimo's grave is, is somewhere that people can visit, but it's in this military compound in this park. And I'm just not feeling that's where it is. And I'm like, dude, Brent, like, we have this connection, and he's the spiritual dude. And I was like, you're the navigator. And we ended up in the small town of Geronimo, and we're driving, we're driving, and, you know, and I'm telling him to navigate. And then all of a sudden, I see this road, and I was like, we're going to take this left right here. And he's like, what road? And I was like, right there. It's right there. And then we pull up on it, and he's like, I didn't see this road, but now there's a road. And he's kind of freaking out about it. And uh, we get to the end of this road, and it's a, it's a dead end, and there's three fences. And there's three fences separating livestock. And on the left side, um, there's some horses in the distance. There's a couple up on this hill, and they're light-colored, and they're like majestic, and they feel good. And then on the right side, there's this, this corral, and there's two horses that just look sick and hurt. And... Um, and so I just, I get out and I was like, this is where Geronimo is buried. And Brandon looks at me and he's like, really? I was like, yeah, up on that hill. And he's like, okay. He's all, how do you feel this? And so then I get uh, to the to the edge where these uh, beautiful horses are. And I was like, watch, if this one horse comes to us and says it's okay, all these other ones will. And of course they come in and this horse comes in and Brent's like, I can't believe this is happening. And I was like, these are to detract, you know, to distract good people. And I was like, watch, if we go to these bad horses, they'll turn away. And we walked over to the sick horses and they, they turned away. And so he doesn't understand what's going on. And then all of a sudden, all of these cows start coming up in the main fence of the dead, of the dead, dead end. And uh, sure enough, each cow is labeled 1 through 13. And I was like, this is weird. And I was like, Brent, grab me, grab me that list. And so I had this list of all of these people. And so I was like, Brent, anybody who's saying probably wouldn't climb over this fence, right? Because these cows, you know, this is their territory. He's like, yeah. And he's like, but just watch. We'll just, we'll just trust it. And we'll hop the fence. We hop the fence. We'll go in there and these cows circle us. And they're all looking at us with their heads down. And, and Brent can't understand what's going on. I don't know what's going on because I'm just following my heart and I'm just feeling stuff. 
and I tell him that he's got to he's got to name all of these, you know, assign this this the name to this this list or the the, the names on this list to these cows. And um, Brent White and the, the thing with numbers is with me too. Like again, you know, feeling everything, making connections with all of this, and, and numerology was part of it. And Brent's favorite number was two. And Brent's white Brent last name is White, and the only cow in this group, and he's number two on the list, is they're all black except for number two has a white face and a white heart. I was like, that's you. So we can already name that one. And he's like, totally tripping, names it, and the cow walks away. And so he's going through all this, and he's having a hard time, and it's super emotional. And you can tell, like, someone who doesn't know what's going on with me, like, what kind of state is Brent in watching me go through all this? At this point, I have my shirt off. You know, and I'm I'm like in the middle of this field. The sun, it seems like it's been sitting in one spot. I kept telling Brent, I was like, the day is not going to continue until you name all of these names. And he's just like, what's up with the sun? And he's freaking out. I was like, I know, and it's just staying there. And he starts naming these off, and each time he he fits a person with a number in this cow. That particular cow then walks away and, and recedes into the distance. And it's like these cows are protecting this hillside. Like they won't let me go up this hill. And this is where I believe Geronimo is buried. And this is what all my inner voice is saying. And this is what I'm receiving. Um, and I believe from above. And, um, you know, and the most interesting thing and the most unbelievable part of this is that as this is happening, there's thunder. Absolutely dead set thunder right above us, just cracking. And, you know, you know when lightning hits next to you and it rattles you, that kind of thunder. And except there isn't a cloud in the sky. There isn't a single cloud in the sky. And eventually he names all of this, and I have this absolute out-of-body experience where I start running up the hill, and I'm bawling at this time. Absolute emotions are pouring out of me uncontrollably. And I see myself leave my body and recede into the light and it turns into this bright light and this flash and then all of a sudden I come to and here I am kneeling with my hands on my face crying on the top of this hill and there's Brent with his hand on top of my head hair flowing in the wind uh, laughing um, and and that was kind of the start of a month long uh, spiritual journey for me and, and it started off with a bang and it was pretty heavy and I was always, you know, wondering about this story, at least my mind, how much of that was real. You know, did, it, am I making this up? But to me, it felt absolutely real and true. Um, and then at that point, um, uh, I went on this this journey that took me through maybe five states and I ended up in a couple of uh, mental hospitals. I also was arrested and I'm going to tell the other story that's pertinent to this, but to just fast forward a little bit, um, I was then back on the river two years ago, three years ago, um, doing a training trip with another crew and I see Brent White for the first time in two years since this has happened. And we haven't even spoke since this happened. And I'm super nervous to see him because is he going to be afraid of me? How is he going to feel? And I remember seeing him 
and he stands up and he opens his arms so wide and he can't believe that he sees me and he rows his gear boat and it doesn't even really park it. It's still floating downstream and he jumps out of that raft and he runs up to me and he gives me the biggest hug of my life and we're both crying and it's like, okay, so I, I don't think he thinks I'm crazy at this point. You know, um, I just went through this really hard time. I'm still trying to figure out how to work all of this out and he's hugging me. Um, and it was a couple weeks later where we saw each other in a lodge and we shared the same room together and we're laying down and it's super good to see each other. And he says, so James, what happened in Oklahoma? Right. He wants to uncover. He wants to go back. He wants to go back. He's all, I want to see it from your point of view. Tell me exactly how that day went through. Uh, and I told him the story and he nods his head. He's all, you know, this story is the most incredible story that's happened to me in my life, including me, uh, myself. Um, he said, I've only told it to two people, um, that I really trust. And the story you just told me is exactly how it went. Um, and my conclusion to, to what had just happened is that I was releasing Geronimo. Geronimo being uh, our guide uh, for our family um, and who I believe was the Apache, the great American Indian, um, and how we got him as a guide, I don't know, but it's quite special, and um, it was like his next step, you know, guiding us and whatnot, and I wanted him to be free of of um, us, you know, of us as, as, you know, him being a guide for us to move to the next step. And, um, I remember calling my grandmother and her just laughing on the phone because she knew, she already knew what had just happened. Um, and that was, that was the start of this journey, um, that then turned into, um, one of the biggest spiritual journeys of my life. Uh, and, and a, a thing that happened, um, and also weeded out who's important in my life and who is not. Um, and, went through a lot of healing within all of that, but that's the start of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you're right. There's, uh, there's elements in that story where, um, uh, empathetically I dive into your shoes and I go, I, I come out of a scenario like that where, um, t- you know, everything's glittering, so to speak. I'm, I'm on this emotional high. I would need somebody to validate, you know, that, that what I had perceived uh, was indeed uh, true, or at least was was duly perceived by another party. Um, so when I heard you say that Brent wanted to to circle back to that day, um, that must have given you um, an opportunity to go. Yep, that's I, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't off my rocker. I might have been acting sporadically or erratically, but um, still goes to say that those those events took place. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They totally took place. And, um, wow. It, it, it was already real. Um, but, uh, my self confidence at this point had been crushed because, um, in Oklahoma, I ended up in a hospital. I didn't even go to the next show. Okay. And, um, I spent some time there and, um, they don't, you know, they don't want to listen to you because you, I think you're in a, a, a loony space and 
Um, it's warranted because I was manic, um, but um, I'm a human being, and these experiences were very real. And I wouldn't take back any of it because in I was in two hospitals, one in Oklahoma and then one in Medford, Oregon, towards home. Um, I wouldn't take back the experiences because the people I met, the other folks that were in those hospitals were life-changing for me as well. Yeah. And I know that I, I helped a lot of people in those places to get through whatever they were going through because my outlook was more positive than a lot of those folks who were in those places. Um, uh, and I remember in a hospital in Medford, it was it was tough because my doctor, you know, asked me, this is the hardest part, too, just because of my background. He, he wanted to diagnose me. Um, and so in order to do that, he was asking me, so, James, what do you do? with your life what's you know like uh, what's your occupation what do you do and I was like well I'm a, a plein air artist I'm a, a fine art oil painter I'm an adventure guide a fly fishing guide uh, and I'm a musician I play music and to him he's like okay I heard enough to to him those things that I just said there's no way anybody could be those things and I was automatically uh, labeled insane because no one is those things um, I was clearly delusional in that I, I did these things. Um, and uh, so I discredited my my uh, my medical, um, you know, like my doctors and nurses, um, not all of them, but some of them just for that because they, I was a number. I was just another person going through the system, and that's what it felt like. Yeah. Um, imagine but, imagine what, what do you think – his response might have been had you said, um, you know, I just uh, I just enrolled into uh, pre-med. I'm, uh, I'm I'm a second year uh, intern at uh, this so and so tax accounting uh, firm or I'm uh, I'm undergoing my baccalaureate at such and such a state university or I'm signed up to punch punch in at such and such a factory. What do you, what do you think his response would have been, uh, had, had you responded, uh, in that way? Yeah, I think the conversation probably would have continued at least a bit and maybe you would have, uh, wanted to get to know me a little bit more, but it, it was clear the judgment was passed. Yeah. You know, it was, it, you know, it, it, it was frustrating to me because one doctor was having the same, interviews with some other folks that were just put in as well. And their interview process was, you know, an hour or two hours long, you know, and it was like, you know, getting the full raw details of what's going on with this person, um, which I think is smart if you're going to work with anybody. And um, my interview was three minutes long and they kicked me out. <laughs> so um, I found a way to get out of that hospital. I, I took uh, a lot of notes. I, I uh, had them photocopy every piece of paper they gave me, all of this stuff. I did a lot of studying and eventually convinced the doctors to let me go um, with consent, and um, which is interesting because they were pretty upset about it. I somehow figured out in this how to play play the game to get myself out so that I can continue my journey. Um, and so that after I left that hospital, uh, the next part of the story is kind of where it's where. Um, that kind of went. Yeah. Let me, let me just quick make it clear. <clears throat> so you're in Oklahoma, they admit you and you're not going anywhere unless you can prove your case. So you 
you you self-advocate your own release by having them photocopy all of your documents. There's that. Yeah, that happened in Oklahoma. They also really wanted me to take particular medication. The only way they would release me. And I remember one counselor saying, it's like, dude, James, you have to play the game or they're going to lock you up for your your life. I was like, excuse me? They're like, yeah, absolutely. They're thinking about locking you up for life unless you comply. So I had to take medication and and show that I was giving some effort, and then they released me. Wow. And, um, and then uh, I went to get help in Medford as well, and um, that situation was also pretty intense. And um, I also did the exact same thing and did my due diligence and um, – really paid attention to how the whole thing was working and essentially outsmarted them. They were pretty upset when I left. <laughs> it was pretty, it's pretty interesting. Okay. So at this point after Oklahoma and after Medford, well, I shouldn't say after Medford, I should say after Oklahoma, were you tuned into something that you had no prior experience with, which is the, the system that exists for folks with behavioral conditions? Yeah, I had never experienced that at all. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, like TV shows or movies, one that flew over the cookie's nest or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's all you really know is just is, is that. I've never had an experience with that. Nobody in my family's ever had this kind of issue or chemical imbalance, or nor did I ever have any friends who that I knew that dealt with this. Um, so this was a completely new experience, the whole thing. Wow. The whole process. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So after your uh, release from the Medford facility, um, what, what transpired, James? So uh, naturally I went to, you know, so um, before I was admitted in Oklahoma, I was in a bed and they had me handcuffed. Um, and there was these police officers and um, they, were, they were, you know, I needed to sleep. And that's what I needed was to like start sleeping to start healing. And they kept waking me up and bugging me. And I remember seeing this vision of the gateway of the Rogue River. And, I, and I'm looking up at the ceiling and I'm seeing the gateway at Grave Creek. There's the gateway. And to me, that's like heaven on earth. It's like I need to get to this point. This is heaven. Um, so I was released. And the first thing I did was get my van and uh, hit the road and went down to Grave Creek. I went to the Rogue River. And, and there I painted and spoke with folks and, um, you know, just enjoyed the river. Um, and, uh, yeah, my parents were worried about me. They had some police officers come down and, and greet me, but I was not doing anything wrong. I was compliant. You know, they're like, nah, there's nothing going on with you. You're cool. Um, and I continued this journey. Um, and I had a lot of people worried about me and it showed me what my, my friend base was and my family. There's a lot of folks trying to track me down, but the thing that was upsetting me the most is no one was listening to me, you know, no one was hearing me out and actually what I was going on. And so, um, I just, I stroked and each day was a new mission and it was about using as much of that daylight to be as productive as possible, whether it. It was uh, going to a trail and meeting new people, taking a hike, seeing friends or whatever. Um, I would hit the road without not even a, a single plan, no map, listening to music that I love and following my instinct and where I needed to go and where I needed to be because I was on this spiritual journey and mission. Um, and it led me to Northern California. Um, wow. Yeah. What, uh, 
what was in Northern Cali? Yeah, so my best friend at the time was living there, and he was one of the people who was trying to kind of rein me in um, because people wanted to protect me because they thought I was going to hurt myself. Um, and so um, it was warranted because I was uh, I didn't have any boundaries at all. I didn't, it never occurred to me that boundaries were a good thing. Uh, to me, based on my upbringing, boundaries were fences and barriers, uh, division of people, separation of, of cultures. And, and I don't like fences. I don't like boundaries, flags, all that kind of stuff. And so anything that separates and divides us, um, I, I, I consider a boundary as a bad thing. Uh, but boundaries, as I come to find out, are a good thing and they help protect us. Right, having clear, healthy ones, um, and these are tools that I just never received. And so, um, I was I was down in California, and there's so many stories, but this one in particular was really life altering and changing, um, and it set me on my path to healing. Um, I was outside of this convenience store, outside of uh, Nevada City, uh, California, along the Yuba. A uh, place I'd never, I, I, I knew this this place intimately, but this particular spot in this town, I don't even remember what town I was in. Um, there was a kid outside, and I was set to go fishing with a guide on the Sacramento to go do some steelhead fishing. And I had a couple extra seats, and there's this, I was outside of this convenience store, and I'm talking to this young man, he's maybe 20, 21, and um, he says he's super into fishing, and me being the person I am because I would basically give the shirt off my back if that's what it was, if that's what it took for someone to have happiness or to feel right. I yeah, would completely you would. sacrifice myself. You know, was convinced that I was going to wear the weight of the world and said, hey, you know what? I have a couple extra seats and I paid for this fishing trip. Why don't you come and join me? And his friend came out and they were super stoked. And so what we ended up doing uh, so we went and get, got some food. They hopped in the van with me and went and got some food. Um, and then we went to their house so they could get their fishing gear, right? I went to my van to then to get something. I wasn't quite sure, but when I came back, uh, what they had done is uh, laced my drink with acid, these two young gentlemen. And um, un- unknowingly, I drank this, this cup um, and I drank it all and it started to hallucinate and I had never done acid in my life at all and wasn't quite sure what was going on. And, um, they tried to use my credit cards and trying to be really nice to me in, in, in so many ways, which is interesting because the day before that I went to the bank and changed my four pin password to a 10 pin password. Right. And so when they were asking me for it, trying to fill up the vehicle, um, me telling them my pin, cause I had nothing to hide they you they couldn't compute a 10 a 10 digit code you know it just didn't make sense for them um and i guess that was some sort of protection for me some insight just following my heart i don't know um just one of those random things i went into a bank and changed my pin the day before and um so i mean they took me around that night and eventually they ended up um on this old highway that that crosses the yuba river outside of Nevada City, and they, they left me there uh, and stole my van and left me for dead. Um, and I went through uh, quite a journey, ended up hiking 20 miles through the woods and ended up at the police station 
um, where I was asking for help, but since I was uh, on in, intoxicated on drugs, I was arrested and I was held. Um, and then I was released the next day, and then an hour later, they the police came again, gave me a field sobriety test, calling me by my first name, knew who I was, and arrested me again for the same charge, which was really interesting. Um, and I got out, and so now, now what? My whole life is in my van, all my fly rods, um, all my painting supplies, you know, my, my life and my journey and my vehicle, everything is there. And here I am without a phone, without a wallet, without nothing. And here I am just on the streets of Nevada City. And so there I go to the police station again and ask them for the help. They say no. Um, and um, but then they said they saw a report of my van being maybe in, in some park, but they wouldn't give me a ride. So I had to take public transit and I hiked many miles and made it to my van, which everything was stolen, you know, gutted, windows broken, mirrors broken, just trashed. But I had to hide a key from, from guiding and was able to get in my vehicle and, and drive. And so the first thing I did was go to the police station and at the police station, you know, told them what happened and who I am. Of course they know who I am, you know, because I'm this voiceless person who just spent two days in jail you know, and like intimately talking with police officers and telling them they're doing a great job. Yeah, I have a hard time believing they didn't get to know you. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I was like, hey, so I got my van. I'm an oil painter. They touched my oils. Their fingerprints are all over. They smoke cigarettes in my van. I have their DNA. I need someone to help me to find these guys. And they're like, well, it's almost 530. It's time to go home. And I was like, no, listen, this is what you're going to do. And um, I got pretty upset at them. And, um, it shook something in them and the police officer went and got his kit and I told him where to fingerprint and I, I gave him the cigarette butts and all of this. And I got all the evidence and made a, a police report and did it right. And so now, right after all of this crazy stuff has happened and many stories before this, this is like almost the end of it, of this month, I, I end up, um, going back towards Oregon and, and I'm going home I'm going home I'm going home and then all of a sudden those heartstrings start pulling me again it's like God it's telling me to turn right you gotta turn right and it's like no I gotta go home but my heart says turn right and so I did it I was like fine I'm gonna continue this journey I thought it was over I'm gonna continue I take this turn and I'm out in the middle of nowhere I have no idea where I'm at at this point and wouldn't you believe it there's one of the gentlemen who stole my van walking with his head high, wearing my $400 pair of headphones, walking down the street. And I was like, huh. And so I see him, I pass him, I turn around, flip a Yui, pull up, roll down the window, park next to him, and he sees me and goes ghostly white. And I said, yeah, get in. And he does. And he gets in. And, um, you know, I was like, so... I was trying to do something good for you and your friend, and you guys took advantage of me. I just spent two days in jail because of you guys. And he's trying to explain that wasn't his idea, you know, just backpedaling through all of this. And I was like, listen, you know what? I did this all for you, but here's the deal. The police now have your prints. They have your DNA, right? It's all on file. I got you. So take me to your friend's house. Get me 
all of my gear, and if you do this, I won't press charges. And we end up at his house, and they start putting gear on the lawn and trying to say they're trying to protect me. Of course, it's all BS, and of course, I'm not getting everything back. So uh, we end up getting the police involved uh, with the help of a neighbor, and um, five people got arrested that day uh, for, for what they did. I didn't get any help from the police other than uh, the arrests and showing up for me at the end of this. Um, and, um, uh, they ended up going to jail and, and for not that long, but, um, because of those things, uh, when I got back home to Oregon, um, I had to start getting my, my, my life straight. So this, this high emotion of, of the world glittering then started to, to crumble. And I went into probably the deepest, darkest depression of my life. And um, mixed with that, uh, my mom was going through cancer. She gets cancer at the same time. And I remember having this phone call with my sister out in the woods, and I just dropped to my knees. And you were talking about the, that phone call with my sister being one of the heaviest, uh, the second being the one with my mom and cancer in that um you know, she's, she's stage three, four, and um, uh, they need to do something about it. And my sister is yelling at me to wake up, you know, and, like, do something about my life. And um, because I, I had just gone through all of this and lost friends and connections and people understand what was going on with me, and I was a bit lost. Um, I ended up moving to, to Lapine, Oregon. And I get this job at a waiter company, minimum wage, not making anything. And um, I have to start my life over. So from a premier fishing guide and artist to uh, minimum wage in assembly line at a waiter company, um, I lose my license in the mail. The state of Oregon says, you're no longer fit to drive. So thankfully, work was close to where uh, I was living. Um, and then there, there was a behavioral health center in Lapine as well, a block away. And I walk in there one day and I tell them that I need to sit with a psychologist. I need to sit down and see what's going on. And this gentleman, this doctor sat with me for an hour and he's all your clear bipolar one. And uh, I was set up with a therapist who changed my world, who told me that I had to play the game, but given what I was given in my spirituality, that if it wasn't this day and age, and if I was in a tribe, I would be the shaman. And I would be praised for these gifts that I have. But in this day and age, I have to play the game because I can't use those gifts like everyone else. And I have to fit in. Um, and so it took a lot of me losing me to then find myself again, including medication and, and all kinds of cognitive therapy to get myself right. Um, and I learned a lot of, about myself. And because of the arrests, I had to do uh, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous. And all of these places are within walking distance of my house. Like Talk about a godsend, everything. Um, had to go to court, even had to go back to Southern Oregon and do jail time for things. And, it's, and it was just um, a huge, huge learning lesson for me. But I had to start over. Absolutely. And I remember about a year into this process, um, the fishing manager at Morrison's at the time, his name is Daryl Hanks. Um, 
uh, and Morrison's had had let me go because of the things that have happened for what they've heard without ever asking me. Uh, but my friend Daryl knew uh, of my passion as a guide um, and my abilities as just a human being and said, I don't care what people are saying or what's going on. You're my friend. You're one heck of a, a, a fishing guide. You're passionate. You make connections with folks. Um, I'm going to hire you. And, and you're going to come back to the rogue. And so there was that talk. And I went on a private trip with my good friend uh, down the rogue. And I was at a campfire and met this woman named Dove, who was uh, the manager for Noah's Wilderness Adventures and do multi-day trips down the canyon. And we're the last two up. And she's not – she went down there because she saw a campfire, didn't know who anybody was, just said, what up? And now it's just her and I at this campfire and she's hearing, you know, of my experience and experience in this particular Canyon and was like, you should work for us. I was like, well, I don't know if I'm ready to come back and all of this. Um, but anyway, the next day, uh, by day two, I knew that I needed to be back. You know, like I said, it was heaven on earth. This place, this is, this is my healing vessel. This is where I need to be. And before I could even get into cell phone range to make the phone call to Dove at the end of the trip, she had already left me a message that she already talked to the owner and they would love to hire uh, hire me. And um, and from that point on, I did uh, two more seasons, multi-day. Um, I ended up meeting the love of my life on the river. And um, we started a company a year ago, ago called Humble Heron Fly Fishing and Fine Art, where we take folks um, on adventures um, and teaching them, you know, the steelhead stoke and what it means to step down runs and swing flies for these uh, mythical creatures we call steelhead. Um, and, you know, the response from everything that I've gone through um, and from being in a position to of where I was, where I felt like I was at, at the peak for me, um, to then have everything come crashing down and take it all away to then come back and, and now we're in a position um, greater than I would ever uh, have imagined. Um, but the community that has recognized that in me has been huge. Um, and, I, and I'm emotional about it because I was for sure certain that I was not ever going to pursue these passions again. Um, taking medication that takes this huge wide range of emotion that allows me to create my work and paint and why people are attracted to my work to take this medication that makes me feel numb, you know, for almost a year to then little by little allow myself to spread my wings within my safety net to then be my spiritual self that I always know that's in me. And that process has been super difficult. Um, and the community around here of boaters and anglers who have allowed us the opportunities um, to then make a difference in this industry has been huge um, and allowing me to pursue my passions again and do what I know best. Um, it's been a phenomenal journey um, and it's been tough. Wow, dude. Yeah. What a tremendous story. Uh, full of, um, yeah, some unbelievable stuff. There's a tremendous amount of depth to you. Um, I think that's part of what uh, we spawned our connection on is, is there's a, a mutual depth there and a mutual respect. Um, I've got some stuff that I would love to dissect with you. Um, but first, 
if you were to try and summarize that in a couple of sentences, what would you say the uh, the overwhelming lesson was? You've heard it a million times. It's just don't quit. Um, don't give up. Um, and don't lose sight of who you are, no matter what you've been given, because you've been given it for a reason. Um, and these lessons that I went through, all of this that I went through, even though I lost some of my best friends uh, and I made some close relationships difficult and, and relationships with my family and whatnot, um, it took those things to really understand who I am as a person. Um, and I would never take back any of these experiences at all because they have shaped who I am and who I will become. Um, so don't quit. Be who you truly, truly, truly are and never stop learning um, internally and externally. Hey, folks. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we want to do our part in recognizing some of the struggles and stigmas which accompany mental illness. And rather than shy away from this, include it in some of our dialogue this month. As always, it's our goal to entertain, educate, and inspire you to get out there and take your own medicine. Thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the show. James, that was a heavy story that you just told, and I appreciate you sharing. I would like to ask uh, a little bit about Kate, a little bit about uh, what you got going on with Humble Heron, um, some of the tremendous things that are propelling you forward into this next chapter. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. All right. So tell us about Kate. So after I came back and and started working on, on the road again, I met Kate Bailey who's uh, an Oregon bred, bred and born um, whitewater guide spent most of her career uh, in Colorado who uh, then came to the Rogue for the last two years and uh, we ended up meeting in a restaurant and um, you know me still going through this hard transition uh, Kate still remembers the first conversation we had um, about these very things that we're talking about. Um, we had a, a, a special connection from the start and, and the ability to share uh, intimate things with each other. I proposed to her at a vision quest where the Takelmas used to go up. Um, the young boys would go and, and, and meditate for days and fast to, to then see who they'd become in the tribe. And it, it happens to overlook her favorite spot in the canyon. And she had never been up there. And so I took her up there and I proposed to her and she said, yes, come to find out we're going to have a kid. And, and, and so Kate, Kate is due in the next couple of weeks right now. We're going to be first time parents, which is pretty cool, which is something I've always wanted to have with someone. And I didn't think would ever happen, especially after uh, the stories that I told you and the chaos it created and the torment between relationships and and who's actually in my tribe and who isn't. And it was just, I, I really didn't think it was going to happen for me. I didn't think I was going to meet that person. I wasn't going to have a family, but 
she's brought me a lot of light and she's the perfect balance. She's creative, but she's also very um, organized and technical with the business side of things for our business. Um, she, she makes things work and a lot of our success is, is due to her. I've never had anyone care more about me in my life and sees me exactly for who I am and who encouraged me to uh, tell this story with you today. So Kate has been a huge, huge light in my life. Um, my family as well. Um, a core of friends that are here in, in Southern Oregon. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot to look forward to. There's a lot of up and, um, and that's good. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. That's, that's tremendous. Tell us a little bit about Humble Heron and uh, how we can find you. I've got a lot of listeners here in the West Michigan area who are also avid steelhead anglers. We do it a little bit different here. Um, although there's some folks who uh, who get out there with two-handed rods who would love an opportunity to connect with uh, with some reputable folks out in the Northwest. Um, tell us how to find you. Yeah. So last year... In January 2017, Kate and I started Humble Heron Fly Fishing and Fine Art, and we specialize in um, steelhead trips in southern Oregon on the coast and some of the central rivers, and our main hub is on the Rogue River. We're outside of, we live in Grants Pass, and, and, and our bread and butter is the Rogue River, but uh, we do some coastal stuff and some northern California stuff as well. Um and uh, our our goal is is education, fish knowledge. Um, that if you if you go fishing with us, you're you're leaving with something um, with lessons. You know what I mean? We're not just trying to put you on fish and trying you to, to get them. It's about the art of the cast. It's understanding the fish and how you hunt for them, um, and then also the spiritual side of it. And you know, is your mind right to be able to catch one? kind of thing um and so our, a big goal of ours is the educational aspect and uh, the conservation side and protecting our rivers and our fish that are really our business partners wow so what a cool what way to look it. at it and, and so we, we we took that and also combined uh my efforts as as an artist um and so um folks who go fishing with us often end up in uh our in my paintings as well so um, I do a lot of fly fishing scenes, a lot of fish scenes, and, and lots of river scenes because uh, steelhead live in beautiful places. So, so how do we find you guys online? Humbleheronflyfishing.com. Okay. It's our new website. Uh, there's links to my artist page, james-sampsol.com. Where is your piece of favorite water and why? <sighs> you know, Kate asked me this question. Um, more than once, um, and it's like a super cliche because you're as a as a guide. If you ever get this answer or that you get this question from your guests, you know what's your favorite river? Yeah. You know you're supposed to say the one that you're on because it's their experience, right? Right. Um, and I've and I've fished so many rivers and I've traveled, you know, as far as South America fishing. Um, Canada, all of this stuff. I've gone on all kinds of fishing journeys and adventures. Um, but there is nothing better than a new run. And I can honestly say it's the place that I'm in at that moment. 
Um, because if you're not with it, every cast, if you don't believe every cast, if you don't have hope that it's going to happen in there, then you're just practicing. For any of our listeners who have um, either personally or extended family members or, or friends who are experiencing mental illness, do you have um, any recommendations as to how how somebody might um, start down the path to healing? Yeah, it would be um, first of all is um, uh, fear is a big factor in all of it, and it can control uh, you or the those in the family that are dealing with folks who are going through mental illness. I know that's it's, it's a tough thing, but. Um, Fear of changing, um, you got to get over that. Um, but somebody, doctors and family members can tell you all the time or as many times uh, as they want that you need help or uh, that you have this or that or whatever you should or shouldn't and this and that and all of this. But it really takes self-reflection, and that's your choice. Um, but... I think the biggest thing for me was looking at myself from somebody else's shoes and really seeing, you know, what state I was in. Um, and, uh, my therapist said that I was a big success story because I showed up for myself. Um, and that was probably the most, um, inspirational words he gave me because, um, he was recognizing that I was doing the work that when I got there, I was in these classes, but I went home and I did my homework and I, and I, and I, I worked it out, um, and got myself straight, but I had to make that choice myself. So the first step starts with yourself. Um, and that there is plenty out there in terms of a safety net, uh, and to help you understand and therapy and cognitive therapy more than anything else has, has been the greatest gift that I received. Um, because believe it or not, you can rewire your brain. There's, there's all kinds of research that allows you to do that in cognitive therapy. Uh, as much as I wasn't understanding it at first, it truly has helped me every single day to be right with myself and check up with myself and see where I'm at um, in the range of emotions and feelings. There's probably a good point to, to kind of wrap up our convo and it was a tremendous story and it helped shape you into a tremendous character. And I'm really grateful for you, man. Thanks brother. I'm grateful for you too. And I appreciate the opportunity to share the story. Um, and with you and your listeners, um, and you know, take it for what it is. Um, it's a, it's a story that I wanted to share, um, to give people hope that no matter how hard life gets, how traumatic things can become. Um, there's good on the other side. There's light. Um, as long as you show up for yourself and you work hard. Fabulous life lesson, man. Awesome. Well, thanks again, James. We appreciate you. And, uh, we will certainly, uh, do everything we can to make sure that, uh, that you get a phone call from somebody in the Grand Rapids area in the coming months. So <laughs> right on. Awesome. Thank you, Drew. I really appreciate you, brother. Likewise.